just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Today I'm joined by Jess Phillips, Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley and author of Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth. Jess joined Parliament in 2015 after a career in the charity sector. She quickly made a name for herself in the Commons for her work on bullying and harassment and also made some headlines. She told Diane Abbott to F off in a row over the lack of women important positions in Labour and she also recently went viral about a speech on privilege and olives. Thanks very much for joining us today, Jess. You grimaced slightly when I mentioned the olives. <laughs> no, I'm really pleased with it, but I feel like I'm going to become the face of olives. Like, um... yeah, I was going to get some in for you. But... <laughs> Somebody sent me some in the post today. Did but... it, how do they travel? Like in a jar? Yeah, it's in a tin. Actually, it's like you know, sort of the sort of posh oh. Spanish version that's in a tin. Yeah, I haven't got to that height yet. Oh well. <laughs> well, just quickly on that speech before we get to, I suppose, the main part of the podcast. You have gone viral. Mm-hmm. What is that like to those of us who have not gone viral? <laughs> it is quite a lot of work to go viral because lots of people get in touch with you. And I don't want to like be sort of like uh, a person who's talking like the common ordinary folk and then basically be really ignorant of them. So loads of people have emailed me, like thousands of people have emailed me to say how much it meant to them, what I said and all that. Because yeah, in, feel... in your speech you said basically that the 30k idea that, that, that if you are an immigrant you need to earn that Less, to, yeah. to be here was actually not the right track to be on because there's so many people who contribute to the country who earn less than that. Yeah, and really the average worker in the UK (laughs) doesn't earn £30,000 and I suppose I was just sort of trying to puncture the idea that people earn over £30,000 is a really decent wage and most people would dream of earning such an amount. But So yeah, it's been quite a lot of work to go viral and to answer lots and lots of emails, which has been really, really pleasant. The only thing I would say is that it has cut through to a group of people... That my virility in going viral means that I've cut through to lots of people I would never normally reach. Quite a lot of Tory people, for example, have been in touch with me. But also, like, I feel a tiny bit famous for this week because there were people whispering behind me in Lidl. That's, <laughs> so, that's pretty big. Yeah, that, that is big when people don't want to say hello to you, but they're going to whisper that they've seen you behind your back in Lidl so I really I think that that is that's the height of fame really people whispering about you as you walk around the sort of scuba masks it probably makes you a little bit self-aware of what you're buying as well it really did I was like don't buy olives (laughs) (laughs) she's a fraud (laughs) I actually really like olives I'd like to speak up for olives and you're saying in your son's eyes you're now Oh, yeah. cool. To my son, he yeah. it, the the idea of like being a meme and having gone viral on the internet is he is absolutely thrilled. He's like, oh my god, mum, you're a meme. Like, there's all these memes of you on the internet, and I like I was coming up in his feed <laughs> on like YouTube and things. So yeah, finally he thinks I'm incredibly cool, but it is completely counterbalanced by the fact that my husband absolutely hates it. He hates the talk of me being viral or Harry thinking it's cool. He thinks it's all like sort of like totally bizarre and I guess looking up to this obviously crowning achievement of becoming cool in your son's eyes and becoming a meme it has taken you a little while to get there um, 
<laughs> so that we can look back. Yeah, yeah. I've reached our peaks now. It can only downhill from this, now. This is your life. <laughs> back to your early life. So you grew up in Birmingham and you have mentioned that you were the daughter of parents who were politically active. Very, very. And you said growing up your father was like growing up with Jeremy Corbyn. By that, are we talking marches? Are we talking allotments? <laughs> oh, yeah. Not allotments so much, although we did grow runner beans and rhubarb and raspberries in the back garden. But... No, yeah, marches. Oh, yeah. we Auntie Anna with her banner. We loved a march. We did. We loved a march. We loved uh, a balloon release was big back in the CND days. Um, we we were often at a street stall on a Saturday. Lots of, yeah, lots of what, that jazz. What age did your marching career begin from? Oh, I mean, births. I was marching from birth. And all of me and my brothers, there's like footage of us on different general workers marches my brothers on the miners marches in the buggy there's hundreds of photos of me like you know with cnd scrawled on my face i mean there was nothing that i did actually as a child that i can remember really that there wasn't in some way associated with some sort of political activism so the bonfire parties we went to were the labor party bonfire parties the the Christmas parties, the summer things, it was all really intrinsically linked with either the Labour Party, CND, the Women's Liberation Movement. The playgroup I went to was called Women's Liberation Playgroup. So, yeah, pretty, pretty political. <laughs> and, and clearly you, you are political I mean, and I've... you have been a member of Labour for some time. But I was wondering, because we often hear about things, for example, there was briefly Momentum Kids was an idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and some people were a bit sceptical. I think even Jacob Rees-Mogg, when you look at his children, some people say, oh, they shouldn't be raised as Tories, they're too young. What is it like as someone who kind of has grown up being engrossed in that to when you probably are old enough to realise the causes you were at. Yeah. Is it a strange experience? Or? I mean, it's the only one I have, but it's a bit like being religious, I suppose. I didn't come from a religious background, but I imagine it's it's like going to church every Sunday and being brought up with a political belief system is exactly the same as a sort of moral belief system of being religious. Uh, what I would certainly say is there was no choice in it. As we got older, we were entitled to obviously make our own decisions. But I say that in the loosest sense, because if we'd voted Tory, that would definitely... I mean, you wouldn't have been able to admit that. <laughs> it's like you'd have had to come out as being a Tory voter. And certainly, like, the people that we married, we all married people. We, I mean, my brothers, interestingly, actually all pretty much exclusively married people who were from different countries who'd come either as refugees to the country on sort of socialist principles. My, I've got a sister-in-law who's French, whose family are from a very French socialist family. So we have all lived our lives a bit like keeping... Family religious and not having inter inter to <laughs> faith marriage. And then, as I suppose with your children, do you do you think that you bring them up in a politically active way? Or? Yeah, I mean, my husband, who is not a member of a political party, but has voted Labour his whole life and has been a trade union member his whole life, because you know he works on the tools. Is he is much more weary of me saying things really certainly to them, to, to being certain about things, and he is very, very strict about the idea of good and evil. 
like we're the goodies, they're the baddies. He's really like because my children, they're kids, they they come to that really easily. Like uh, they saw Boris Johnson in Parliament one day when they were down for the weekend, and they were like, Boris Johnson, he's a baddie. No, I can, I totally agree with them. But my husband was a bit like, no, you know, he is a human being. We don't behave like that. You know, we disagree with him. So my husband is much more reason. But I have to say, yeah, I, they are, they have been, camp- they have been politically campaigning all of their lives as well and I my son my younger son my older son doesn't really talk to me anymore in that teenage way but my younger son like he will he will go on fiercely about Brexit all the time he's like the people now have a better idea we definitely need to speak to them again about this I'm like where is this coming from my husband's like it's coming from you (laughs) and then going back to your own childhood uh you said that one of your your childhood ambition was to be prime minister yeah so like just aiming quite high from an early age I know what a precocious thing I was how awful I recently read over at school did you tell everyone that well I recently read over my I don't know if you're maybe too young to remember this but your national record of achievement which was the thing that you were made to do that you were told you were going to take to job at every job interview and literally nobody ever took it everywhere it's like a burgundy sort of fake marbled folder and like it's like Jess is good at IT because she can use a calculator that sort of thing Uh, but you had to write about like what you wanted to be and I reread mine recently and it was just so painful to read it was like well I'm quite good at public speaking and you know I think I could convince people to do this so I think maybe I should be a politician and I've been an active member of the Labour Party and I just felt really sad for my teenage self that I'd basically laid out all my plans and never left anything to chance so yeah I definitely did tell people and if you were to talk to the people who I went to both primary school and secondary school with and said are you surprised that Jess became an MP they'd be like no it's good you stuck to it though sounds like your national achievement yeah I mean I think you're fairly on it with your predictions I mean yes but then there was many years when I went away from it so I don't know really actually I don't think I realized I remembered that that's the way I felt because there was like a 10-year period where I definitely was like ugh, never Um, and then you studied at Leeds where you did economic and social history Uh and I was just like, what was your experience there? Were you particularly politically, politically active no. there or did you just have a good time? No, didn't, wasn't politically active at all. Never been a member of Labour students. Didn't take part in anything. I don't, this guild that people talk about now, people talk about the guild and like guild politics and being sabbatical officers. I, I don't even know what those things are. I've heard other young students talk about them. No, I had absolutely nothing to do with politics. But re- you have to remember that I went to university during the Blair years and before it started to sort of kick off although in my final year I did go on the or maybe I'd left by then I went on the Iraq war march but not from university I went with my mum and dad (laughs) (laughs) yeah obviously how did you spend your days at university then I mean I barely did anything I just watched countdown all day I, I could have done my degree in the bath I I mean I had something like eight hours of tuition a week and I remember eating a lot of ham sandwiches. I put on a lot of weight. I sat around smoking fags and watching Countdown with my mates. <laughs> so then from there, you decided... It was decided... not studious or political. I can, I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. I always wonder when people ask you, kind of, oh, were you involved in this society? And I'm like... I wasn't involved in any society at all. Um, just society. I was just involved in that, barely. <laughs> Occasionally left to flat. <laughs> and then after graduating, you ended up working in the charity sector for several years. What kind of drew you there, given that you initially wanted to be Prime Minister? Were you thinking in the sense of, oh, if I do some experience here, then that builds Yeah, that, that will or, or lead were you, to... Or were you simply saying, this is what I'm interested in? Yeah, I mean, I think I... 
I mean, I had been put off the idea of being in frontline politics when I was actually about sort of 16, 17, and I did my work experience uh, with school. And where my mum worked, they were putting on a big conference because it was then the 50th anniversary of the NHS, which makes it seem a long time ago now, because we're we're on 71 now. And I went, it was in 1997, I was 16, and I went and helped organise this conference and Tony Blair was coming and uh, Frank Dobson who was then the health secretary he was there and Tessa Jell was there and I called her Stella all day and she was very good about it I was 16 and so I had to be with them all day and the amount of planning that had to go into them moving around this one building for an hour or something I just thought I could never have this sort of controlled life I could never do this I will try and have a job in the sort of back room of politics civil service or uh, working um, for MPs and stuff so I sort of put off the idea of being in front of the camera and rather to be behind it Uh, and I thought that working so I wanted to go into the civil service and I wanted to go into working in politics and I thought at the time I think well I'll get lots of experience with the different sorts of people and try and see how that sort of pulls me one way or another to working with specific groups of people, whether it's the health service, whether it's the home office. And in fact, it turned out to be the home office sort of policy that I became really closely linked to because I worked with asylum seekers, um, I worked with young offenders, I worked in and out of prisons, all voluntary jobs initially. And the reason that I was doing voluntary jobs is because I had a baby. And I, so I wasn't working full time, I was looking after my son. So it gave me the opportunity to do all these different voluntary jobs and find out what I wanted to do. And then I sort of settled on focusing my career on working in sort of home affairs, crime and justice. So now it sounds like I'm saying it like it was a massive plan. It didn't feel like it at the time. It felt like a massive cock up a lot of the time. And... <laughs> um- I suppose with certain charities like Women's Aid, what, what do you think from, you learnt from that going into politics later on? Because often you hear a criticism of people who do the the fast track route maybe to being yeah. an MP, of SPAD school mm-hmm. or anything like that, and they d- perhaps don't have such a deep grasp of policy or also perhaps have an ideological view. Yeah, I think actually I think that I mean, working at Women's Aid for about seven years, working directly, uh, supporting people who were victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, human trafficking, sexual exploitation. I mean, it totally changed my life. It was I was talking to my husband about this the other day, saying I think that that was the game-changing thing because it made me want to step up. It made me think this is I've got to fight harder somewhere else and I've got to carry on with this sort of plan to change policy. And... If anything, it taught me. It didn't just teach me a frontline experience of welfare, of housing, of home affairs policies, of policing, of our court system. It literally touches almost every single aspect of social policy working at Women's Aid because their lives are so monumentally complicated that you touch on almost everything and become an expert in the most complex cases of every single department. Um, Those are things like women who are suffering from domestic abuse. Yeah, so uh, so a woman who's homeless because of domestic abuse, a woman who is destitute because she can't get the access to the correct welfare benefits, women who have their children removed from them, so you learn a huge amount about children's social care. And it taught me both fight and also 
direct practical things that were wrong with policy and that were hurting people rather than just people who model it at some think tank. It was, I suppose, in Refuge you see exactly how policies mess people up or save people, perversely. And But I'd say the thing that Women's Aid taught me more than anything is the thing you said about ideology. It made me want to fight for women. It made me see, it made me very certain in one sense about how I had a sort of purpose to stand up for women. But at the same time, it taught me that I had to become pragmatic in order to achieve a goal. So my Corbyn-like father, I, I took a big amount of money to set up a children's rape counselling service for children who'd been sexually abused from the big lottery. And my dad had taught me from the moment the big lottery, the lottery existed in the country that the lottery is simply a poor man's tax. It is a tax on poor people and we shouldn't rely on it for funding things that the state should fund. Now, of course, I would die in a war to say that the state should fund rape counselling for children I don't I think even the hardest spectator reader would think do you know what I think that it's okay that taxes go to children who've been raped however those were the kind of things that got cut in 2010 so I took took we we did a bid and we we took money and I remember my dad being like well it's not right you should be you know the state should be doing this and I thought then actually the things that I do in politics and the things that I do in work aren't about whether I can sleep soundly in my bed. They have to be about whether those people can. And sometimes I'm going to have to do some things that are uncomfortable to me ideologically because it helps somebody else who needs it. And actually it taught me to be really pragmatic working at Women's Aid. It taught me to focus on the end result rather than on how we get there. And then moving into when you decided to go into Parliament, it's interesting there because we can understand obviously your motivation for doing it. But I was wondering, with obviously having a a child and motherhood, lots of people don't know when exactly the right time is. Was that a factor in you deciding when when you wanted to be an MP? Because I've been to one of, I remember going to a fringe event with you a few years ago at Labour Conference where you were saying it's great because lots of other MPs have young children, but yours can open a beer for you. Yeah. That's right, my kids can access the fridge. They can even now, even more years have passed since then, Katie, and now they can actually go to the shop. They are not old enough looking to actually buy beer yet, I'm, I'm sad to say. They can do your little. Uh, <laughs> that's it, you know. But they can definitely go and get, like, a passable amount of shopping for me. Yeah, because I had my children quite young, so I was 22 when I had Harry and I was 25 when I had Danny, which you never feel this... There's never a right time to have a baby, actually. It will mess up your career whenever you do it. But I'm actually a big cheerleader of women having their children younger and I think that we're put off it for some unknown reason. But, yeah, to becoming an MP, I wouldn't have done... Well, Danny was two when I was selected, but he was going to be at school, properly at school, by the time I was elected. And I think that made the big difference. Uh, I... It definitely was a consideration that I had to make about how old they would be by the time I was actually elected. So I was elected in 2015. So Danny was actually six by then. So he was well into being at school. It definitely made a difference. I wouldn't have done it had they been a little bit littler. 
So it, the 2010 general election, I, if I'd stood then, although I never even thought about it, I wasn't even a member of the Labour Party, to be perfectly honest, back then. Um, was that because of Blair, Iraq, or yeah, just not reviewing Blair, the Iraq, yeah. and also, yeah, my parents left over Blair and Iraq, and they were definitely still paying my membership fees because they paid it for all of us, because... <laughs> It was not negotiable that we would be members of the Labour Party. And they stopped over Blair in Iraq, so we all left over Blair in Iraq. And um, so then entering Parliament, I was wondering, just going back to that speech, I was dwelling it too much, but one of the things that took off was basically you saying that before you entered Parliament, you felt, you know, posh people were basically people who had certain things in their fridges, yeah. such as olives. Olives. <laughs> but not even olives from a tin in that case. <laughs> um, but... It was only when you arrived in Parliament that having had a career where you're doing lots of different things, you suddenly see all these new layers of it. What was it like going to Parliament? Because everyone says it used to be a bit archaic, but it's obviously modernised. What were your initial thoughts? I mean, at first, it is, it's overwhelming when you first walk in. It is a building you know from the television, and it is like... I, I, for the first year I was there, I just couldn't believe that I worked there. Now, bearing in mind, I think I'd maybe been inside Parliament about three times... By the, on the day I was elected. So I, I wasn't somebody who worked for an MP. I'd, I'd, I used to come down to London quite a lot with my job, but I'd go to the Home Office or the Ministry of Justice. So I'd been in those government buildings, which essentially behind quite a nice facade are just office buildings. So Parliament was a bit of a shock because it is so historic and everywhere you turn, there's something to sort of feel awe about. But I... I genuinely, I suppose what I was saying in the speech is, I thought not only that I had met posh people before I came to Parliament, I thought I was one. And, you know, because my dad was a teacher and my mum, like, worked in the NHS and had worked her way up to be a manager. And, you know, like, we went on holiday maybe once a year when, when I got older, not when I was little. We didn't have much when I was little. But we weren't, you know, like, we weren't poor, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, my mum used to, like, cook courgettes and my dad would make, you know, those sort of middle-class foodstuffs. I thought that that was posh. And then I came to Parliament and I realised I had never, ever... I had never met a posh person before because... What were the telltale signs? Well, everybody goes to private school, for a start off. I had never... I mean, there's one private school where I knew a couple of girls who went to this private school called Edgbaston High School in... It's actually where Malala Yousaf so I went when she moved to Birmingham. And I knew a couple of girls, but they were definitely... I mean, posh isn't the word that springs to mind when I think of them from uh, teenage years. But, I, 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 you know, I'd never met a person who went to a boarding school before I came here. I remember actually having a similar experience when I went to university. There was a, a brilliant woman I lived with who I don't think was particularly posh, but she had gone to a, she'd gone to a private school and she was called Emily and I'm still friends with her. But the thing I couldn't, I'd never met before I met Emily was somebody who had a posh nan. Like I understood like the baby boomer generation of public sector working parents like mine who'd sort of bettered themselves and had bought houses in the 90s and... and gotten sort of comfortable from that boom but everybody's nan lived in a council house and everybody's nan like went on a shadow bank holiday to western and had obviously never left the country and i lived with this woman emily and her nan was on a yoga retreat in india <laughs> i was like that my nan i mean it's glamorous if she's been to marx's for the afternoon like i like she you know she wouldn't have a car they would go on the bus they would they lived in council houses do you know what i mean my my, my grandma my grandma and granddad, and they, you know, smoked fags. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like 
people's education comes up in conversation then when when you speak to them in parliament or was it more that you kind of suddenly heard about their background or yeah yeah you you hear more about it and you meet people and they are just are posh in themselves aren't they they're quite they have posh manners and I have to say, nobody's ever been snobby, snobby towards me in Parliament, particularly. There's, I've suffered a bit of sort of direct sexism. And when I say suffered, I obviously didn't suffer it. I told them to fuck off. <laughs> what, like? Um, there's a certain group of Tory men that when you're speaking, they'll go like this. Shh, in the like, chamber? Yep, yep, in the chamber. And I'm like that. What do you say to me? <laughs> so I don't put up with it. But I've never suffered real snobbery. But, you know, like... I mean, it's even, it's not that this is particularly posh, but I remember talking to Stephen Kinnock when I was first there, and I love Stephen, he's a great friend of mine, and he's totally down to earth, and he doesn't present as being posh at all. But I was like, yeah, you know, we've got sort of similar lives. My dad's a teacher, your dad was the leader of the Labour Party, my husband's a lift engineer, your wife is the Prime Minister of Denmark. <laughs> it was a bit sort of like, you know, there's quite, <laughs> quite a lot of fancy people, isn't there, you know? Like, I'd never met somebody who was married to a Prime Minister before. And like, you know, Nicholas Soames and stuff, who I absolutely, you know, what I, I mean, he is a hoot. You know, he's Churchill's grandson. <laughs> you know, like, and people say things like this. Is, uh, they say things like, oh, are you of the... Are you of the Wiltshire Phillipses? <laughs> no, no, I'm definitely not of the Wiltshire Phillipses. And people's houses have Wikipedia pages. Like, there's two MPs. So I have looked at where they live do on you, Wikipedia. Do you Google, do you Zoopla them if you get invited round? <laughs> totally, <laughs> yeah. Totally go and Google Maps people's houses. I yeah. Don't know. <laughs> oh, totally. It's brilliant at election time because it's easier to tell which one is actually theirs because they put the posters up. <laughs> And then there are some people in your parties who have said that they're not friends with Tories. You've just yeah. mentioned that Nicholas Soames is a fun. Yeah. And then also, <laughs> you've mentioned before you have a bit of a friendship with J.K. Rees-Mogg, yes. which on the surface most people wouldn't expect. Yeah. I was wondering, you're someone who's been a support for people's vote. Yeah. Uh, J.K. Rees-Mogg <laughs> is ERG. not in support of that. Yeah. He would say it's already happened. Yeah, he has. <laughs> so... Have, has that been a strain on your friendship or did you disagree on so much stuff in the first no, place it's hardly agree. anything we don't agree on anything at all we just can be polite to each other in the corridors and you know I can feel concerned if his children are sick because he's a human being and you know it's not when I say you know I'm friends with Jacob we don't go on holiday together I can't imagine him coming out like you know Birthday round mine for a barbecue but I, you know I have to work alongside People who I fiercely disagree with, I actually think it is dangerous and it is a really bad example to allow that to turn into hatred. It's, uh, I can't remember which wise person said it, but it's like drinking poison every day and expecting it to kill your enemy. And I'd much rather get on with my job and try and... I mean, everywhere I've worked, there's been knobs who work there for a start off. And, you know, you can't get on with everybody and you can't agree with everybody. I just, I think political rhetoric at the moment is really too violent and too extremist. And I don't want to hate anyone. And some of them, because I'd never met people like this. It's like they're like sort of, it's like I'm... I've just come through like the Amazon jungle and I've found like some amazing thing that I've never seen before. So some of it is genuinely like being like a tourist. Because when you entered in 2015, I think Ed Miliband was leader. 
I, 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 I think he might have stood down by the point that I actually got there, but maybe he was still the leader. I don't recall. In, in that in that election. Me. Oh, in the and election, that, he was the leader. And yeah. then obviously you suddenly have Jeremy Corbyn, a very different figure, mm-hmm. and the Labour Party is a little bit different. I was wondering, do you feel that politics has got more partisan since yeah. that you've you've got there? And I was wondering, is that something you? And you touched on it there. Do you regret that it has got that way? Yeah, I mean, I think it has got much more partisan. But n- that's not necessarily the fault just of the actors. It is culturally we've all got more divided. Do you think social media plays Social media that? plays a massive part in it. And people are just so certain. They get stuck in their echo chambers, so it reinforces that certainty. But when I say that... I think it is also a bit lazy to suggest that the country is massively divided because in my life in Birmingham I don't notice it very much. I don't I don't see the same aggression really either within my own Labour Party but also just my constituency and my friends and family and my home. So I actually think it's off-putting for the country and is not representative, but it's definitely got more divided par- parliament. I-, I like to think that had we been going through this sort of Brexit wrangling with two different leaders in a different time, let's say Brown and Cameron, for instance, it would have been much easier to build a consensus. And that's not because they believed the same things. They absolutely radically didn't. I mean... David Cameron spent his entire premiership undoing all of the measures that Gordon Brown had put in place over almost everything. Um, But I just think that the division wouldn't be so great between them and they would have at least started from trying to work together. But the characters of both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn made that impossible. Thank you, Jess. And thanks for joining us. No worries. And if you like this podcast, please do remember to subscribe and perhaps even rate us on the iTunes store. You could even leave a review, should you wish. Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. 